that's where we want to begin this morning. I want to ask you a, a question. Uh, are you a Protestant? And if you are, if you stand in a Protestant stream, you are by definition a protester. Did you realize that? If you're a Protestant, you are indeed a protester. And so, as you know, we are gearing up for the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And Jason, thanks for uh, introducing that song. I don't know about you, but that, that gives me, it gets me really revved up uh, to think about these great realities, to sing about these great realities. Well, as we celebrate together and as we move closer to October 31st, we are reminded of the great doctrines which were not discovered by the Reformers, but rediscovered by the Protestant Reformers, unearthed, if you will, by these great uh, and godly leaders. These pastors, these theologians, these academics protested the teaching that was coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, you, you know very well by now that it was Martin Luther who led the charge, especially with his now famous 95 Theses, which he posted on the castle door on October the 31st, 1517 in Wittenberg. Luther's bold move to publicly dispute the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church sparked what I like to refer to as a theological firestorm that began, first of all, in Wittenberg, impacted his countrymen in Germany, and then soon made its way around the rest of the world. And Luther's legacy, I must say, continues to impact us this very day. His was a labor of love. And this was a labor that was grounded in the truth of Scripture, and it was driven exclusively by his love for his Savior. Well, the title of the series before us is Always Reforming, The Marks of a Faithful Church. Last week, we looked in great detail at the first sola, that is sola gratia, grace alone. And in so doing, we learn that salvation is generated by God through the grace of God. Today, we turn our attention to the second sola. We refer to this as sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone, you see, was the banner that flew high above the streets of Wittenberg in the 16th century. Faith alone was, you might say, the engine that fueled the fires of the Protestant Reformation and continues to fuel the lives of Christians all around the globe. Now, as I mentioned last week, and you'll, you'll hear me say this throughout the rest of this study, the chief concern of Luther and the Reformers was answering the question, how can a sinful person stand in the presence of a holy God? The psalmist gets to the core of this problem. In Psalm chapter 130, verse 3, we read these words, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities or should mark sin, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is, no one could stand. No one could stand. The Word of God makes it abundantly clear that all people, apart from grace, are condemned. 
We need to remember this morning that every person, every child that is born is a sinner by nature and choice. You tend to think when a child is born, they're a sinner by nature. And yes, indeed, that is true. But every person that is born is not only a sinner by nature, you are a sinner by choice. Indeed, Romans chapter 3 says this, For all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul continues in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. He says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Please remember as we think about sin, that sin is a stranglehold. Sin is a, a death grip on every person who has yet to receive the free grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. Sin is a, a, a tyrant monster that masquerades as a helper. Have you learned that one yet? Sin is so attractive. It is so appealing. One of the things I love to say that just shocks people is this. Sin is fun. Have you figured that one out? It is so fun. But remember this. It is also a tyrant monster that masquerades as a helper, but will, in the final analysis, lead you to hell. Sin corrupts, sin deceives, sin distorts, sin, in the final analysis, kills. One of my favorite Puritan writers, Thomas Watson, says it like this. Sin is a thorn in the conscience. It is a sword in the bones Watson continues, every sin is treason against the crown of heaven. Now, the more treasons a person commits, the more he enrages his prince. To sin, to sin still is to dare God's justice. Tis to affront him to his face, and an affront will make God draw his sword. Watson says, every sin is a drop of oil upon hell's flame. Simply put, if God judged your sin, you would indeed face his holy wrath. If God judged your sin, you would go to hell forever and ever and ever. Now, before Luther's conversion, you recall that Luther in that fateful moment, was knocked off the horse in a thunderstorm, and he cried out to the patron saint of the day, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. And when God spared his life, he made good on that promise. He entered uh, not too much later an Augustinian monastery, and he became a Roman Catholic priest. But before his conversion, his sin almost drove him nuts. His sin almost drove him to the brink of despair. Why? Because Luther saw God as a holy judge that he could never please, that he can never work hard enough to appease or please. He said this, Sometimes Christ seems to me nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand. And so Luther was a man who, who was more zealous than any of the other Catholic priests in the monastery. He fasted for days on end. He slept in the snow without the comfort of blankets. Some days he would be so proud of his personal holiness, personal holiness in quotes, that he would actually say, today I did not sin. Then it was Luther who would begin to 
double down and re-question his efforts. Had he fasted long enough? Had he prayed long enough? Had he tithed enough money? Had he worked hard enough to earn the favor of a holy God? And you can hear the question in the background. How can a sinful person stand in the presence of a holy God? Well, Luther's frustration continues to intensify as he took his first pilgrimage to Rome in 1510. And I I like to think about things in my mind's eye. I have a bit of a strange imagination. And and I imagine Luther in my mind's eye. I imagine him on this pilgrimage, on, on his feet, gazing out over the city of Rome. And imagine the, the profound sense of awe that he felt as he looked at this beautiful city. As he saw all the, 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 the pomp and the circumstance of the Roman Catholic Church. But when he arrived into the city, into the heart of the city, realized that the piers for the new Basilica of St. Peter's had just recently been put in place, and the Sistine Chapel, which we all know very well, was not yet complete. That gives you the historical context. And as he entered the heart of the city, as he walks into Rome, he was horrified by the rampant ungodliness of the priests that he encountered. He was deeply disturbed by the practice of selling indulgences. Now, Pope Leo X had commissioned a man. He was the the telemarketer of the day. He would have been one of the best bloggers in our culture, right? He commissioned a, a man by the name of John Tetzel to sell indulgences to the faithful. If you're not familiar with indulgences, indulgences were to be purchased for a price. And that they would reduce the time of a loved one spent in purgatory. So if your uncle Joe dies and he, according to the Roman Catholic Church, goes to purgatory, John Tetzel would say that you, you put money in the pot and that will enable you to receive an indulgence and that will make his time in purgatory less or even release him out of purgatory. That will release him out of purgatory. Tetzel had a little jingle, and it went something like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And that's what Luther heard. Luther would hear as he entered the streets of Rome, he heard these hundreds and hundreds of coins entering the coffer. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. The key question of the Protestant Reformation about sinners standing in the presence of a holy God was not only of deep concern to Martin Luther. You might be interested to know it was also a very important question to Rome as well and continues to be. Both sides, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants, agreed that apart from grace, that sinners would stand condemned before a holy God. Both sides, both Rome and Protestants, agreed that that sinners stand in need of the righteousness of God. How Rome and the Reformers viewed this righteousness became the sticking point of the Reformation. And so exactly how can a sinner stand in the presence of a holy God? The answer to this crucial question was at the very heart of the Reformation. And so this morning... I want to set the Roman Catholic view 
of justification by faith side by side with the historic teaching of not only the reformers, but also sacred scripture. And I want to begin by looking at the gospel. And I I say this graciously, I put the gospel in quotes. I want to look at the gospel according to Rome. And before I I walk through four very important components of the Roman Catholic position that was taught in the 16th century and continues to be taught today, I want to make a a personal comment. I've been at Christ Fellowship now for uh, almost six and a half years. And I've heard several comments that go something like this. You're mean to Roman Catholics. How, How dare you say those things about Roman Catholics? That's very ungracious, and and I understand all the sentiments, but I I want to put a word picture in your mind. I want to begin, but before the word picture, I want to let you know that I love Roman Catholics, and I hope you love Roman Catholics. Some of you have friends or family members who are still in the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, it would not surprise me if some of you here today are practicing Roman Catholics. You have come as a guest, and so the purpose this morning is not to offend you, but to to show what the, the teaching of God's word is. And so here's the word picture or the, the example I, I pose to you. I want you to imagine that you have some friends that are going to travel to Rome and they're going to go to the Sistine Chapel. And this, this example is actually a very real-life example in light of all the terrorist activity that we see in our culture. If I got some inside information and I heard that a bomb was going to go off in the Sistine Chapel, and I knew that my friends were going to be there tomorrow morning and the bomb was going to go off tomorrow morning, what would be the most loving thing for me to do? I would call my friends and I would say, Listen, I have some friends in the CIA. I have some friends in the FBI, and I heard that some news was leaked that a bomb is going to go off in the Sistine Chapel. Don't go. You'll die. Whatever you do, stay away from the Sistine Chapel. That's exactly what is happening this morning when I share the historic view of justification by faith from a Roman Catholic perspective. Now, something may surprise many of you. Please understand that Roman Catholics historically have taught and continue to teach the doctrine of justification by faith. Isn't that something? Catholics have and continue to teach the doctrine of justification by faith. Please don't misrepresent the Roman Catholic Church. They teach that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to explain some very important nuances of that. Let's begin. Sinners, according to Rome, need to be justified. And we will see in a moment that to be justified means simply this. We need to be in right relationship with God. We need to uh, uh, be in a situation where we stand in the presence of God without being judged. But here is the key, and I set this above everything else, and have you tuck it away in your mind. The Roman Catholic of justification by faith is, and it's a big word, but it's an important word, is sacerdotal. Sacerdotal. The Roman Catholic view of justification by faith is sacerdotal. That is, justification, that is, receiving right standing with a holy God, is mediated through the priesthood of the church. The seven sacraments of the church are required for justification in this system. We're not going to review the seven sacraments this morning. 
But I want you to see four very important clarifying comments about Rome's view of justification. Number one, number one, baptism, baptism is the instrumental cause of justification. Now, if you've been at Christ Fellowship any, any number of years or even weeks, you will see that when, when someone is baptized, one of the first things we say is that baptism cannot save. Baptism does not save. We roundly reject the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. I like to tell baptismal candidates, especially children, because children really relate to it. I said, here's what's going to happen when you get baptized. You're going to get wet. You say, anything else? Nope, you're going to get wet. Carrie, do you remember that when we sat down with your kids? And I, I said to Carrie and, and Tom's kids, you guys are getting wet. You're going under. Plug your nose. Now, don't, don't lose the significance of this. Is You not only get wet, but you make public testimony of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But does something inwardly happen in your soul? No, you get wet. Here's what Rome says. Baptism is the instrumental cause of justification. Rome teaches that justification begins with baptism. The sacrament of baptism merely gets the the quote-unquote ball of justification rolling. And so think about when an infant is baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, that's when grace is bestowed. That gets the ball of justification rolling. That leads to number two. Justification is via infused grace. Justification is via infused grace. The New Catholic Catechism says it like this, and I quote, Justification, that is right standing with God, justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith, It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. You can see that justification here is via infused grace. Now, the grace of justification is infused. Now, most of you, when you hear that word infused, you say, I have no idea what you're talking about. It makes no sense. Raise your hand if you thought that. Grace is infused. You're like, I... Do you have a word picture, Pastor? I do. When grace is infused, you can remember this word. The grace of God, when an infant is baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, is poured into the sinner. Now, if you're thinking carefully, you see a a very, very critical error in this teaching. That if grace can be poured into one picture, dot, 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 we'll come back to that. Rome teaches that at this point, the baptismal candidate, when a child is baptized, that child is cleansed from original sin. Rome teaches that the baptismal candidate at that point is regenerated and placed in a state of grace. Additionally, the person maintains justifying grace. Listen, so long as they don't do anything to hinder it or prevent it. So what happens? You commit a sin. We'll look at the results of that later. Number three, justification in the Roman scheme is by faith. Now, you remember I said justification by faith is taught in the Roman Catholic Church. But here's where the clarifying comment comes. Justification is by faith plus works. 
There are other components we could wrestle with this morning, like penance and purgatory, but suffice it to say, R.C. Sproul helps us here. He says, the gospel according to Rome is the good news that a sinner may be justified if he or she receives the sacraments, has faith, and cooperates with grace to the point of becoming inherently righteous. Here's the fourth and final thing we need to know about the Roman view of justification by faith. Justification can be lost. Justification can be lost. That is to say, in shorthand, in the Roman Catholic system, you can lose your salvation. You can lose your salvation. Now, there was a a council that convened known as the Council of Trent. It convened in 1545 and concluded in 1563. Like, honey, I'm going to the Council of Trent. When will you be home? I'll be home in 1563. (laughs) Can you imagine? That's a long council. And it was a very important council in the Roman Catholic Church. Here's one thing that surfaces. Quote, those who through sin have forfeited the received grace of justification when moved by God, they exert themselves to obtain through the sacrament of penance the recovery by the merits of Christ of the grace of lost. You say, I don't know if I understand that. Here's what it means. Do you recall how grace was given to the Roman Catholic at baptism? It was poured in. And so if grace is poured in, who knows what I'm going to do right now? Grace, if you commit sin, can be poured right back out. Now you have an unregenerate person. That person lost the gracious gift of grace. Now, here is what becomes very important for our understanding. The 16th century Roman Catholic Church utterly repudiated the biblical doctrine that sinners could be saved by faith alone. You say, wait a minute. You said earlier that Catholics believe in justification by faith. Indeed, they do. Indeed, they continue to. But here is the sticking point. When you say that sinners are saved by faith alone, that's when the line is drawn in the sand. And I would encourage you, if you have Roman Catholic friends, to have friendly exchanges about this this issue, if it's possible, to make sure you talk about justification by faith alone. Now, as I prepared this message, I thought, this is the time when I'm going to have audience participation. I'm going to have you raise your hands. I'm not going to have you do that. But I want you to imagine in your mind's eye what your answer to this question would be. I want you to imagine that I'm going to ask you this question. How many of you believe that you are justified by faith alone? And my suspicion would be the vast majority of you would answer, yes, I believe. And I would be the first to say, I believe the scripture teaches I'm justified by faith alone. At the Council of Trent, one of the important statements that that grew out of that council was this. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, so that's at least me, and I hope most of you, if anyone believes that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. And I hope what just happened there is it all clicked in for you. I hope for some of you that are wondering, why, what what is the big deal about the Reformation? 
what is the problem here? Why can't we just let our Roman Catholic friends be as they are? The reason is that historically, to this very day, the Roman Catholics teach that if you believe that you're saved, that if you're justified by faith alone, you are placed under an anathema, a curse. Now, rewind with me to 1515, which is the approximate date of Luther's conversion. Here is the passage, if you would turn with me to the book of Romans. And you remember the the struggle that Luther had as this very religious man. He was, as Romans 10 said, as an unconverted Roman Catholic priest, he had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he struggled and he stewed and he wrestled and he grew angry with God. But one day as he was studying, he ran across these lines in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. He said, he reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther writes, My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul, who had a great yearning to know what he meant. You see, Luther understood that apart from justifying grace that pardoned his personal sin, he would never have peace with God. And once he understood and embraced justification by faith alone, that is, sola fide, once he accepted the merits of Christ on his behalf, he was saved and he had peace with God. His next task was to spread the message of the gospel far and wide. That is, he would spread the message of justification by faith alone. And so it began in Wittenberg as he hammered the 95 Theses to the castle door, which prompted public debate. It prompted a lot of debate. Thousands of copies of the 95 Theses were reprinted and distributed throughout Europe thanks to Gutenberg's invention of the press, which happened several years prior. Luther's books and sermons were published widely. And the Protestant Reformation was was born as people everywhere soon learned that they could know God personally and be forgiven by grace alone through faith alone. This is the historic teaching now that we have seen concerning justification by faith of the Roman Catholic Church. Next to that, I want you to see, secondly, the gospel according to the Reformers. The gospel according to the reformers, or you might say the gospel according to scripture. Now, in our doctrinal statement at Christ Fellowship, we have two sentences that touch on this issue. I want to show this to you on the screen. It says this. We believe that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any human merit, works, or ritual. Genuine faith produces Christ's glorifying fruit in the people of God For the glory of God. Simply put, sinners need to be justified. And so look with me quickly at the Reformation doctrine of justification. I want you to remember, however, what's at stake here. Luther said that 
Justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. It's one of my favorite Luther quotes. Think about it. Justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. If, if you repudiate justification by faith alone, you fall as a church. If you repudiate the justification by faith alone, you cease to be a biblical church. And that's why this is such an important issue. And so as we think about justification, which means to have right standing with God, I want you to think of two components. And if you forget everything else, this is something I would have you take home with you today. Justification begins here. God thinks, first of all, as my sins are forgiven. He not only thinks of my sins as being forgiven, but he has he has given me his very righteousness. And so when you believe, when you become a Christian, God not only forgives your sins, but he he grants you. We're going to use the word impute in a moment. He imputes to you the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the first component. But over here, I want you to also see the second component of justification. And this is so important. And that is that God declares you righteous. An exercise I've been doing for years that helps me to understand what the, 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 the preconceived notions of justification by faith alone are involves this question. And please don't raise your hands. Are you righteous? And the typical evangelical answer goes something like this. Oh, yeah, I'm justified. And that is not the correct answer. That is not the correct, correct answer. There is a distinction between a legal act and a transforming act. And it is indeed the former. Justification is a legal act, not a transforming act. How many of you did something this morning that would make you think, I'm not very righteous? Anyone? You can raise your hand on this one. You, like, you, you just blew up at the kids or you ran over a squirrel and you're happy about it. I mean, just life's just not good, right? You say, I am not very righteous. You should have seen me at the game last Thursday. Oh, boy, man, the referees didn't like me, right? But recognize this. Justification means this. God declares you as righteous, right? God, God looks down. He looks down through the completed work of Christ. And he, he sees Arlen. What does he see, Arlen? He sees righteousness. And it's not because Arlen is righteous. He's not. And I'm not. But because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, because of his, his life, death, and his resurrection from the cross and his ascension to be at the right hand of the Father, now God views Arlen as righteous, even though he's not. Isn't that? It's amazing. Therefore, God gets all the glory, and we get no glory. But we receive all the benefits of the gospel. So walk through with me these components of justification by faith alone. Number one, justification is not a process. Justification, and hang with me, justification is not a process. Justification is a one-time event. The reformers taught that justification was forensic. That is, it was a legal act. In other words, when sinners are justified, they stand before a holy judge. Ken, I was going to see if you had a gavel. I'm looking for a gavel. And here's what happened. On July 4th, 1974, 
when I was just a little boy and I knew I was on my way to hell and I said, God, I'm a sinner and I know I'm going to hell apart from Jesus' completed work on the cross. Lord Jesus, would you be my savior? I, I, I repent of my sins. I believe there was a gavel that went boom. Not guilty. Forgiven. The imputed righteousness of Christ on David Steele. Now, did I do anything? I did absolutely nothing. I believed and I was granted the very righteousness of Christ. And I'm forgiven of all my sins. When sinners are justified by God, you see, they're declared righteous. Romans 3, Jason read this earlier. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified again means to declare righteous, to cause to be in right relationship, to acquit, to remove all guilt. So do you struggle with guilt in the Christian life? Jesus took your guilt. Do you struggle with the sin you committed yesterday? Jesus forgave you of that sin that you committed yesterday. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Rome's view of justification conceives sinners who are made righteous or who become righteous. The reformers stood with the word of God and argued that sinners are not made righteous. Sinners are declared righteous. For what does the scripture say? Romans 4 says, Abraham believed God. And here's the big word. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. In Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Isn't that the message we should be proclaiming in Whatcom County? In our neck of the woods where, where people are proud of their accomplishments, and it's not just our neck of the woods, it's sinners everywhere, is we need to be proclaiming this message to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. A man who's had a great deal of influence in my life teaches at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Tom Schreiner says it like this. He says, believers are counted as righteous, not because of what they have done, but because of what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not this kind of a transaction. Justification, you see, is a one-time event. And it's all because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Number two, justification is not an infusion of righteousness. Justification is an imputation of righteousness. Rome says that the grace of justification is infused or poured into the soul of the person being baptized. But scripture says that sinners are imputed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 6, we read that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse that many of you know by memory that says, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see the, the, the critical doctrine of double imputation. Double imputation that says the sin of everyone who would ever believe was imputed to Jesus. Every sin that I have ever committed or will ever commit is imputed to Jesus. That's the first part of double imputation. The second part of imputation is that Christ now, according to verse 21, imputes his righteousness to me. It's what Luther referred to as the great exchange. Isn't that a great exchange? The Savior gets my sin and I receive his righteousness. Number three, please see that justification is by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone. Tom Schreiner continues. He says they are counted righteous because they are united to Jesus Christ by faith. And Jason, I so appreciate you walking us through Romans chapter 3 because it's just right in line with the message. Romans 3 verse 28, Paul says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But what do we want to say in our culture? But God, I want to do something to earn your favor. I want to build something. I want to make something. I want to create something. I want to do something. And why do we do that? Because we want the credit. We want the glory. But scripture says we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, Rome teaches, as I've indicated, that the instrumental cause of justification is baptism. The reformers, along with scripture, teach that faith alone Faith alone, sola fide, is the instrumental cause of justification. Number four, and this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. If, if we were to take a poll today, and I, I've done this in many different arenas, and I've done it with, with uh, uh, in biblical counseling and talking to people on an individual basis. If I were to ask how many of you have struggled with assurance of salvation, my suspicion is the vast majority of you would say at some point in my life, and maybe even today, I've struggled with assurance. And my suspicion is that Roman Catholic theology has crept into the evangelical church because the church historically has never taught that you can lose your salvation because the Bible doesn't teach it. Justification can never be lost. I want to have you look with me at three passages in closing. I want to have you look first at John chapter 10. And as we explore this last very important point, number four, that justification can never be lost, please understand that we, we're skimming this doctrine ever so quickly. Some of you walked through a 12-week class with me a few years ago on the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And so we can safely say we could talk about this for at least 12 hours. I'll give it about two minutes. It's an important doctrine. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. And these are from the lips of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. He says this, My sheep 
hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Would you notice something with me? How many times have people along the way said, yeah, but you don't understand. Yeah, but what if I, yeah, but what if my uncle, yeah, but what if my wife? Notice there's no what ifs here. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You see, for someone who says you can lose your salvation, here's what they say. I know better than God. I know better than God's word. When scripture all along repeatedly tells us that we cannot lose our justifying grace. Look at a second passage in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter one, verse six, a tremendously encouraging text. Philippians one, verse six. Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You see, if the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart, if your soul has been quickened by the Holy Spirit, we realize this. God began a good work and he will complete that good work. Now go to the end of the New Testament just before the book of Revelation, to the little book of Jude. Jude 24. Of course, there's only one chapter. Jude 24. And we'll conclude here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. See, my friends, justification can never be lost. Justifying grace can never be compromised. And this morning, we have seen that there are two radically different answers to the question. How can a sinner stand in the presence of a holy God? We've seen the answer given by Rome, the answer that they taught in the 16th century and continue to teach today. We've also seen the answer given by the reformers who embraced the doctrine sola scriptura. And we come to this point by saying, how can a sinner stand righteous before a holy God? The answer is that sinners are justified by faith alone. Sola fide. And here's the bottom line. As Doreen and I had a chance to have a wonderful evening out with some dear friends last night. As we're in Bellingham and we're, we're looking around. And one of the things we saw was a lot of people. And most of the people we saw were broken, broken people. These are people struggling with sin. These are hurting people. These are people who feel the effects of sin on their lives every day. Some of them don't even realize it, that sin, their personal sin, has separated them from a holy God. Their sin has alienated them from God. And this sin that they have committed invites the holy vengeance, the the holy wrath of God. And so this morning, I want to bring it from Bellingham back to Everson and pose this question. 
Have you come this morning with a load of sin? Have you come this morning with a, 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 a sin nature that has never been dealt with before a holy God? Does sin still have a stranglehold on your life? You know, some of you know this about me. I, I love the catechisms. I, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith. I love the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. These are, these are great historic catechisms. Did you know something? Did you know you could memorize the Heidelberg Catechism? You could memorize the Westminster Divines? You could memorize the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith and be dead as a doornail. You can have it down pat. You can memorize systematic theology. You can memorize the word of God and still be as unregenerate as the doorknob. Isn't that something? And so here's the question. A dear friend of mine, almost in passing, said this to me just a few days ago. He said, the question to pose to people is this. Do you believe now think about that. It, it was deeply profound to hear those words from my friend. Because you can memorize the catechisms. You can memorize the scripture. You can have all the answers down pat. You can go to Bible college. You can go to seminary. You can be the smartest theologian on the face of the earth. But if you don't believe, you're unconverted. If you don't believe, you were unable to stand in the presence of a holy God. You would be annihilated in his presence. Does this make sense? And so the question I want to pose to you is the, the question my friend posed to me. Do you believe? And when I ask that, do you believe in your head? Do you, do you, do you believe what the scripture says? Do you believe in your heart? Do you embrace what the scripture says? And do you also entrust yourself to a person? That is, do you trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Because apart from this faith that emerges in the mind and this faith that surfaces in your heart, what the Puritans called the affections and the trust, the personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from that level of faith, the Bible says you are without hope and without God. And so this is where the rubber meets the road this morning. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is my only hope. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is your only hope. Your only hope is to be justified by faith alone. Now, this is a totally different sermon, and I promise not to start preaching a new one. But here's what the reformers said. They said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. You say, wait a minute, I, I thought I had this all figured out. We are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. And here's why they uttered those words. We're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. And that's why the reformers said we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. If you are a converted person, if the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart, your desire will be to worship. Your desire will be to minister, to roll up your sleeves in the body of Christ and to serve. Your desire will be to be a blessing to those in your community. 
Would you pray for me tomorrow as I meet with Kevin DeVere, as I ask a, a Christian man, the, 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 the uh, principal of Everson Elementary, how can Christ Fellowship be a blessing to you? Because if we are a group of converted individuals, we will have a desire to impact our community. We will have a desire to impact the nations. I hope this morning you leave with a boost of encouragement, knowing that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's bow together for prayer. Uh, Father, this morning, we're just reminded in the songs that we sing. We're we're reminded by the scriptures that we read. We're reminded by these biographical accounts of some of the reformers, of the beauty of the gospel. God, we're also reminded that there's nothing that we can do to stand in the presence of a holy God. There's nothing we can, uh, no act that we can perform. There's no amount of money that we could give. We, we can't earn our way to heaven. The only thing is to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be saved. So thank you, God, for justifying grace. I thank you, God, that, that you have drawn so many here uh, to yourself, that you have rescued so many people from your wrath. And I pray that you would continue to do a mighty work of grace here at Christ Fellowship, that you would enable our hands, that you would enable our feet, that you would mobilize our our mouths and our eyes and our ears so that we would be a blessing to this community. Help us to remember that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. May those words challenge us. May they take us out of our easy chairs. May they move us into the community to make a difference in the lives of people who need to hear the gospel and also believers like Anton and Esther and Betsy, dear saints who need to receive the love from their church family during these very difficult days. And so we trust you to do great things in the days ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.